Hey everyone, I'm Pastor Nick Tarter. I want to thank you for listening to the New Covenant Fellowship Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Bethany, Oklahoma, learning what it looks like to be in Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did, so that our world can be saturated with the good news and the good works of Jesus. We invite you to join us on this journey, and we hope that this content will help you to grow to be the person God created you to be. This morning, we are, as Pastor Dwight said, going to return to Luke chapter 6. And uh, I just have to say, uh, there's a few people with us this morning, which is cool. We're gu- These are our guinea pigs. Um, <clears throat> you guys didn't know that, but this is a test lab. We're actually testing our... Uh, just sort of the environment, and we are looking forward to having uh, everyone back together really soon. But uh, I volunteered my small group to uh, sort of test our protocol. <laughs> so, um, you know, if all of us survive the week, then we'll be one step closer to actually meeting together here really soon. Um, so, we're excited about that. I want to start this morning with reading a little quote from my favorite book that outside of the Holy Scriptures, and that is uh, The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. And he, uh, this this is one of those statements that has always had, um, ever since I read it, a very profound effect on me. And here's what he writes, a leading American pastor laments, why is today's church so weak? Why are we able to claim many conversions and enroll many church members, but have less and less impact on our culture? Why are Christians indistinguishable from the world? Should we not at least consider the possibility that this poor result is not in spite of what we teach and how we teach, but precisely because of it? Might that not lead to our discerning why the power of Jesus and his gospel has been cut off from ordinary human existence, leaving it adrift from the flow of his eternal kind of life? I have to be honest with you, I, uh, before I read this book, I'd had that thought many times myself. I had, as a pastor, and even before I was a pastor, I'd wondered, why is it true that so many Christians I know have a relatively unchristian sort of a life? And then Willard continues, and he calls this this, this section Gospels of Sin Management. But here's what he says. The current situation in which faith professed has little impact on the whole of life is not unique to our times, nor is it a recent development, but it is currently at an acute stage History has brought us to the point where the Christian message is sought to be essentially concerned only with how to deal with sin and with wrongdoing or wrong being and its effects. So what, what, what uh, Dallas Willard understood, and by the way, Dallas Willard is with the Lord right now. Um, he has been for some years, and I imagine that uh, he's having a great time. <laughs> but, but something that, that he understood is that when we as believers fail to live lives that, actually, that are actually centered in the gospel, there's something that has been fundamentally broken about our faith. And that the thing that is broken is probably that we have failed to understand the grace of God as the center of our lives 
rather than as sort of a, uh, you know, some people view the grace of God as sort of an entryway into the Christian life, but then it's up to them, right? It's up to them to complete it. It's what Paul talks about in Galatians, where he, where he chastises the Galatians. Now, we've, we've, We've spent some time on this, but I, I keep coming back to it, where he says, hey, what you began by the Spirit, are you now going to finish by the flesh? Of course not. Of course we're not going to. If we started by the Spirit, we must also finish by the Spirit. But our tendency as humans is to think, okay, now I've got it, but now it's up to me. And this goes all the way back to our first father, Adam, and our first father, Adam's tendency to reach out and take for himself what he should have waited for God to show him. Right? Because God called him to follow. God said, you follow me, I'll teach you. I'll disciple you. Adam was God's disciple. You understand that? Like, Adam, God's design was to show Adam how everything worked in the universe. Over time, as Adam was ready... But Adam says, I've got to have it all right now. He reached out without trusting God, grabbed a piece of fruit, and, well, you see how things have turned out. If you want to be mad at somebody about this coronavirus thing, be mad at Adam. <laughs> okay, that was, this is his fault. We wouldn't have anything like this if he hadn't reached up and grabbed the fruit. But let's also understand that each one of us are partakers of the fruit with Adam. So the title of today's message is, It's Always Right to Do Good. And we're going to talk about goodness and, and, and how it's a part of the character and nature of who God is and how it flows out of a life that is based out of grace. But I want to think specifically about something we've been watching happen. Because I asked the question, and I alluded to this a little bit last week, but I want to go into a little more depth on this. Why is it that when people are faced with something like a pandemic, or in Oklahoma, pretty much any time there's bad weather, why is it that they hoard toilet paper and bread and meat and all of these things? Why do they hoard medicine? Why have they hoarded masks so that it's even hard for medical professionals to get them? Even though we know that, uh, that masks really don't prevent you from getting a virus. It may help you from sp- keep you from spreading it. But even though we've, we've, we know all these things are true, why is it that people hoard these things in times of emergency or you know, perhaps of, uh, of, of great uncertainty? I think it's because that they see life as primarily about themselves. When we see life as primarily about me, and my own well-being, and my own happiness, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to live in such a way whereas I don't think about other people, right? So I, I will go and buy a uh, 10-year supply of toilet paper to keep in my basement and not thinking about how somebody else might not have supply. Or I go to the store and I buy all the baby formula not thinking about the fact that other people have babies that might need formula. By the way, they don't stay on formula for very long. I don't see why anybody would need a five-year supply of baby formula. But, but, you know, but this is some, some things that we have seen over the past couple of months. Buying all the hand sanitizer. You know, buying, buying way more than, than one person or one family could ever possibly need so that they can feel somehow secure or in control, but not thinking about anybody else, Right? It really exposes something about the human heart. 
And, and, and I, I think that it really shows us the heart behind all sin. Because the heart behind all sin is essentially this. I am more important than you. Adam took the, took the fruit. We don't know if it was an apple for sure. It's probably pomegranate. Those are really good. Um, uh, maybe it was jackfruit. I, I really have no idea. But, but he reached up and he grabbed that fruit. And what he was saying is, I am more important than anyone else. He was saying, I'm more important than God. I'm more important than my wife. By the way, who, was, who ate the fruit first and Adam did nothing to protect his family, right? Like that was what God set him there to do, to, to steward the earth and to take care of his wife. And, and he didn't do any of that. He was just very passive. And then he just went along with what she did. Instead of being the man he was supposed to be, he didn't stand up and do anything he just was passive, and then he took the fruit himself, and he essentially said, I don't really care about anyone else. I just care about myself, and that's what led us down this path that we're on now. That's the heart behind all sin, essentially, is we're selfish. We're self-centered. Now, think about it, because probably maybe the greatest example of this we have in the book of Genesis is, is Cain killing his brother Abel. Why did he kill his brother Abel? Because, well, because, again, he saw life just like his dad saw life. He had his mind set on a certain path, and anything that would get in the way of that was something that he was going to plow through, including his own brother. Now, of course, he took it further than his father Adam took it, but isn't it true that every generation will take their parents' sin to the next level? Where my parents' generation, you boomers, we love you guys, um, but, uh, but the sexual revolution, like the millennials have taken that the next, to the next level. And now, uh, things are just all kinds of messed up. And I don't even want to know what the next generation is going to do with those things. Uh, unfortunately, I'm probably going to live to see it. But, but, you know, we're going to, but the reality is we, we take the brokenness that we grew up with and we just carry it on. And so Cain, with the same heart of his father, the same heart that led his father to take the fruit and eat it, led Cain to kill his brother because his brother had gotten in the way of his own glory. That's what Cain was after, his own glory, his own sense of satisfaction. And so he eliminated his brother. But not only that, but in that moment he boasts about it when God comes to question him and he says Am I my brother's keeper? I'm not responsible for him. I, you know, it's just about me. i got to take care of numero uno. You know what I mean? Like that, that's a very American way of saying what Cain said when he said, Am I my brother's keeper? So not only had he done this thing, but then he essentially boasted that he didn't have to worry about his brother. That wasn't his problem. And of course, God had other things to say about that. But, but I, I, you know, the, the point here is that we may not be as, as extreme as Cain, we may not see ourselves as extreme as even Adam, you know, deliberately disobeying God in the garden. Maybe you don't see yourself as, as an extreme, extremely disobedient person in God's kingdom. But the reality is that heart is in all of us. We tend to be about ourselves. We tend to be about trying to forge a path for ourselves 
concerned more about our own satisfaction and our own sense of well-being than other people. And that's why you went and bought all the toilet paper. That's, I'm, that's pretty much a sermon today. I, I just wanted to get you toilet paper people and let you know what I thought about you. I'm just kidding. Um, but but I, do, I do think this, this is important for us to, to, to think about this because we all have certain tendencies towards this. So, so here's the thing. I mean, Cain says, I'm not my brother's keeper, but the kingdom of God is a very different place. In the kingdom of God, I am my brother's keeper, right? I am. And how do I know that? Because I see the example of Jesus, who was the righteous one, who took my place on the cross. Though I deserve death, he took my death so that I could have his life. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Christ didn't have to do that, and yet he did. Why? Because he is his brother's keeper. And that is the example. God, the highest one, lays himself down for those who are the lowest. And that is the pattern that God sets. But that's not how most people live, right? Um, there is in me a tendency towards self-preservation. I, I, I see it frequently. But there's also in me a Holy Spirit who keeps telling me, stop that. <laughs> and, and really, like, I, I, I remember um, this, I'm just going to share with you guys a little out of my own heart. I was, uh, I remember going to the grocery store when all this stuff was starting to ramp up. And there was, there were supplies there still. And I thought to myself, I should stock up. I, I remember hearing that voice in the back of my head. I, I, and, and then I remember the Lord speaking to my heart and saying, but there are other people, <laughs> you know. Um, sometimes the Lord speaks to me in the voice of George Costanza from Seinfeld, where he says, you know, we're living in a society here, people. Some of you guys are Seinfeld fans, and you'll get that. But, um, but, but the whole idea of, yeah, like, this, we're in this together, right? We have, we have to take care of each other. That is the ethos of the kingdom. Now you, you may be saying, what? what does all this have to do with Luke chapter 6? Well, that's what we're about to get into. So let's read this passage together. Because we're going to see how the issues that we're dealing with today really are nothing new. We could see them back then as well. And Jesus was dealing with them very directly. So Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 6. And here's what the Word of God says. On another Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. Now, uh, just, just a point of, of, uh, of just to make sure you know where we are. Um, last week, we were on a different Sabbath. Okay, Jesus was, uh, remember, he was, he was declaring himself as Lord of the Sabbath because he had had, he and his disciples had picked grain and they were eating on the Sabbath. And the uh, religious leaders got all bent out of shape about that. So that was a different Sabbath day. This is another time, another instance where there's a collision between Jesus and the world over the issue of Sabbath. And what does it mean? So, so on another Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. Now a man was there whose right hand was withered. The experts in the law and the Pharisees watched Jesus closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they could find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and stand here. So he rose and he stood there. And Jesus said to them, 
I ask you, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? To save a life or to destroy it? After looking around at them, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. The man did so, and his hand was restored. And they were filled with mindless rage and began debating with one another what they would do to Jesus. Interesting, right? Really interesting discourse. And, and so here's what I want to say. There are incredible similarities between what Jesus was dealing with and some of the issues we continue to deal with today. And here's what I mean by that. If, if you look, first of all, well, let's just take a look at this guy, right? This man with the withered hand. He was a very inconvenient presence for the religious leaders of that day because, um, because there was something very broken about him. I mean, it's not normal to have a withered hand, right? Uh, it's, it's not the way that we were created. There was something that was broken, something askew with this man. And, and with a bunch of religious leaders who are obsessed with perfection, by the way, having a guy like that around would have been very inconvenient. Plus, it, it's hard to ignore someone who needs help, isn't it? And it's the Sabbath day, and these guys had decided in their minds that the way to honor the Sabbath was just to make sure everybody didn't do anything. And they went to great lengths. And can I say they worked really hard to make sure that nobody worked? Okay? Um, that, that, was, that was what they were doing. They had a set of rules that they'd set up. You follow these things, and you won't break the Sabbath, and we'll be righteous before God, and everything will be great. But here's a problem. In the midst of this, there is a broken man who needs help. The man's hand was truly withered, but I think we need to understand here that there's, there are layers, right? When we look in the scriptures, these stories are all true stories, but there are layers of things that are happening here. We have to understand that our physical ailments are shadows, they're echoes of spiritual reality, right? This man had a withered hand, but he also had a broken heart because he was a son of Adam. And as a son of Adam, he was a partaker with his father, Adam, just like we are, in the fruit. And so his withered hand really was representative also of his withered heart. And everyone around him who looked at him with a judgmental glance proved in that moment that they too had the withered heart of Adam. And so in this moment, what we see on this Sabbath day is, yeah, sure, there was his hand. But we, just like this man, are broken and withered as well. And our hearts are broken and withered, and we need restoration. Our world is a lot like the world C.S. Lewis described in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's always winter, but never Christmas. What a bummer. Man, I, I, I love that book, but I just love that descriptive. Always winter and never Christmas. Can you imagine um, what that would be like? It'd be like living in Russia or something. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm sorry to the Russians. I didn't mean to. Um, communist Russia is really what I meant to say. Um, but but it, it's like this, 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 this world, it just to me, it feels like it's gray and concrete and it's lifeless. 
That's what C.S. Lewis was trying to portray that life without Christ is like when the white witch was queen. And that's what our world is like. We are broken in need of restoration, just like the man in this story. But let's, let's look on because in verse 7, this is, this is amazing, right? Here are these guys. They're predators, aren't they? they, they they're experts in the law. Now, this is really important because these are the religious people. These are the guys that you would think have it all together, right? And, and we know that a lot of them were, they had good theology. The Pharisees actually had great theology. They were very biblical. But they were also so far from the heart of God. They understood tenets of the message, but they failed to understand God's grace. And there's a sense in which God, God's grace is the activator which makes it actually work. In verse 7, the experts of the law and the Pharisees watched Jesus closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they could find a reason to accuse him. Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. Okay, first of all, that, that, that's a problem anyway. But they were actually looking to accuse him for doing something good on the wrong day. In their minds. But understand this, they, they didn't care anything about this man's condition. They didn't care that this man was suffering, that he'd had this withered hand his, you know, probably his entire life. He was probably born that way. I mean, this, this, it, 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 maybe, he, maybe it was from an injury. We don't really know for sure. But, but we know that this man was suffering. The right hand was a really important hand in those days. You realize if you were left-handed, they thought you were demon-possessed? I mean, they, they thought you were like, that you had no soul or something. So this guy, like, he can't use his right hand. He can't, he can't shake someone's hand or give him a fist bump or whatever because that was the only hand they would use for that. If you tried to use your left hand, they thought you were a weirdo back then. I'm glad we're not like that anymore because my daughter's left-handed and she's really cute. Um, but, uh, but they didn't care anything about this man's condition or his suffering or the fact that this made life socially awkward for him. It created distance between him and others. There was no empathy in them. And by the way, that really exposes the true nature of their religion, doesn't it? If they can look at somebody, a suffering child of God, and say, I don't really care about you. All I care about is whether you're following all the rules. But see, the reason I wanted to make the connection between that and some of the things we're seeing today is that's the same heart. Do you see that that's the same heart that many people are reaching out in when they're hoarding things and when, they're, when all they care about is their own good and their own well-being during this time of coronavirus? Sure, it's not the same context exactly, but it's the same heart, the same broken, withered heart of our father Adam where I would look at someone else and have no empathy and I don't care whether or not you have the supplies you need or the food that you need, as long as I'm taken care of and my family's okay. And that is the brokenness of human nature. It's impossible for someone who's living in Adam's shadow to see truth. If we're living in Adam's shadow, we just cannot see God's truth. 
Because Adam's children, we've convinced ourselves that life's about us. Okay, we, we, we're, just, we're convinced that we're the only thing that matters. And the Sabbath rules that the Pharisees and the scribes had set up, they were just another power play under the guise of obeying God. They were pretending like they were obeying God, but at the end of the day, they didn't love God enough to do what God had told them to do from the heart. Right? God is a good God. His heart is good. His character and His nature is good. And by the way, the spirit of, of Sabbath is that we would pause and reflect on God's goodness and His glory. If they'd actually done that, they would have seen a man like that and they would have been overjoyed to have an opportunity to express God's goodness on the Sabbath day, knowing that that is the best way to honor the Sabbath day, is by doing something good. It's the best way to honor God. And there's nothing in Scripture that ever prohibits us from doing good on a holy day. God himself never misses the opportunity to do something good. And if we're his children, we're going to be like him. They didn't love God from the heart. It's pretty clear. They made a list of rules that would help them to be righteous in their own sight. But it wasn't what God told them to do. The Sabbath rules weren't even in the Bible. They were things that they had made up to make sure that they could check all of the lines to be sure they were doing the right thing and they were righteous in their own eyes. It was a way of holding their contrived sense of righteousness over God's head. They were saying, hey God, look how good we are. You have to accept us now. God, we're such good little kids. You can't send us into exile anymore. Dare I say they were looking at God and saying, God, do you see how good we're being? You better send us the Messiah and the one that we want, by the way. That was the heart of the religious crowd of his day. And you know, I think there's a whole lot of that going on in our world today where people say, well, God, I've been a good little boy or girl, so why aren't you giving me the things that I want? You know, that, that's actually the prosperity gospel. And the funny thing is they were doing it back then, and we're still doing it today. We're like, oh, I've done all the right stuff, God. You have to give me what I want now. Like God is a genie. You rub the bottle the right way, he'll come out and give you what you want. Is that who God is to you? I think we each need to ask that question because it's really easy even for people who are really religious people to get in that mindset. How do I know? Because these guys were more religious than we are. In a lot of ways, they're better people than we are. And yet they got stuck into this mindset as well. So all I'm saying is if they could get stuck there, so could I. I need to check myself. I need to check myself. You need to check yourself. Where is your motivation? Because just like Adam, rather than looking to God for their sense of identity and purpose, they were looking within. And because of it, they were totally corrupted by sin. Even in their good works, they were corrupted by sin. Their good works had been perverted. But look at verse 8, because uh, we're not done with this yet. Because here's what, he, here's what happens. Jesus says he knew their thoughts. He knew exactly what was going on in these guys' heads. And so he said to the man who had the withered hand, get up and stand over here. So, so Jesus is 
this is really cool because this is a power encounter, isn't it? This is the, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man coming up against one another. Jesus is not going to let them remain in their broken way of thinking. And, and understand this, there's several things going on here. Obviously, Jesus cares about the crippled man, but do you realize he cares about these scribes and Pharisees too? Because he doesn't want to let them stay in their way of thinking that has become so corrupted. He's trying to jar them out of that. So Jesus came to reverse the effects of Adam's sin. And he's not going to sit by and watch a bunch of self-righteous people stop God from having his way. This is one of the great examples of the kingdom of God coming down. And coming against the kingdom of darkness. Which humanity has put ourselves under. And by the way, can I say this is also a foreshadowing of Jesus' redemptive work. We talked about how the man's condition is sort of a foreshadowing or sort of an echo of our, the human condition of being broken in need of restoration. This is a foreshadowing of Jesus' redemptive work because here he draws the ire of the world. He draws all this anger and frustration of, of the Pharisees and scribes who didn't want to see him restore a broken man. They didn't want to see him do the right thing because it challenged their way. But in the same way, he would endure the hatred of the world and the wrath of God, which we earned in order to restore us. Right? So, so here he calls this man up with the intention to heal him. And you know that the anger is welling up in them. And they're thinking, don't you dare restore that broken man. The exact same thing was happening as Jesus was on his way to the cross. Because on his way to the cross, Jesus was preparing to restore all things. And all of that anger and hatred and frustration were coming at him. Jesus is the eternally innocent one who takes the heat for the eternally guilty ones who are deserving of death. And by the way, Paul tells us in Romans that it's the wages of sin, right? Death is the wages of sin. That doesn't mean that like it's just something that we happen to stumble into. No, what he says is actually you earned death. It's what you've earned. It's the proper payout for what you've done. So sin earns us death. It's not something that we just happened upon. It's actually something we worked hard for in order to enter into death. But Christ was not having it. We earned horror, yet we get good through him. Jesus stood in the gap for this man just as he stands in the gap for us. And, and the reality is you have people in your life, just like this man did, who will say, you're not deserving. You're not good enough. You're not worth it. You have people in your life like that. You shouldn't be important to God. And, and God wipes all that away and says, one broken person who needs to be restored is worth it to me. Something that I, I think all of us need to realize is that Jesus doesn't shed his blood for people who aren't worth his time. Jesus doesn't shed his blood for people who aren't worth his time.
And this one crippled man was worth his time and was worth him getting the whole community angry at him over. Just like your soul is worth it to him as well. And then we see in verse 9 that there's no middle ground for Jesus. Look at this, what he says in verse 9. He says, he says to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save a life or to destroy it? In other words, according to Jesus, there's no middle ground. There's no doing nothing on the Sabbath. You're either doing good or you're doing evil. Those are your two choices. You're either saving life or you're destroying it. And these men, by being passive towards this crippled man, were actually complicit in the destruction of his life. And the same is true of us. If we're not actively pursuing God, we are actively running away from him. It's either good or evil. There's no middle ground. You can't say, well, you know, I kind of like Jesus. No. If you just like Jesus but you don't love him and pursue him, you actually hate him. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. He's, There's no room for middle ground here. We're either for him or we're against him. And in this moment, he's seeing that this opportunity, no, you either save life or you destroy it. And Jesus is saying it's always the heart of God to preserve and to restore a life. Always. Doing good is always in season. We don't say, well, I'm sorry, it's the Sabbath day. I can't do something nice for you. Oh, I'm sorry, there's coronavirus. I can't, I can't serve you today. But how many excuses do we come up with on a regular basis? Coronavirus is just the latest one that's kept Christians, people who call themselves Christian, from doing good. Why? Look, I understand that we have to be good citizens and we want to obey what, our, what, what our, uh, our government is telling us to do as much as we possibly can. But that doesn't mean that I can't serve my neighbor somehow or love somebody who's in need or to, you know, take care of somebody. We don't isolate ourselves and deny the power of the gospel in moments like that. But we actively pursue goodness in every season because it's the character and nature of God. And Jesus, in this moment, made sure that we know there is no middle ground. There's either good or evil. And good is actively running with Jesus, and anything else is evil. And look what he does in, in the next verse, in verse 10. After looking around at them all, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. The man did so, and his hand was restored. Amen? Praise God. Like Jesus restored the broken man. And I want to say that he... He's about your restoration too. You know, I think there's a lot of people listening to this broadcast today or who are in this room, and maybe you're just feeling like, you're feeling really broken right now. Maybe you feel cast aside. Maybe you feel like no one cares about you. Can I tell you that Jesus cares about you? He does. And he's gone to great lengths to bring you to the point of restoration to your Father to cleanse you of your sin, to cleanse you of, of, of going your father Adam's direction, to bring you back to the right path with the father. The religious crowd had forgotten who they were. 
Somewhere along the way, they began to believe that God's primary concern was rules, regulations, and compliance. They thought they were defined by what they did in God's sight. They missed the fact that God had already named them his children. They got in trouble because they failed to act like they were God's kids. And it wasn't because they disobeyed the rules. It was because in their heart of hearts, God wasn't the center. And they didn't care about him first. And because they didn't care about him first, they didn't care about others. All they cared about was themselves. And they were trapped in the cycle of Adam and Eve. And Jesus came to free us from the cycle of Adam and Eve. Here's the thing about God's grace. And by the way, I've I, I got to reiterate this. The theme of Sabbath is God's grace, his love for us, doing good works. It's, it's learning to rest in his presence. And as we rest in his presence, we become more like him. If we think of Sabbath or religion or anything else as, as something other than a resting in God's presence, we're missing it. Like religion's not like a step, a, 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 a Religion's not a bunch of stairs that I'm climbing up to get to God. No, like that, that's not true religion. That's the way a lot of people view religion. No, religion is spiritual discipline that I do because I'm already his kid. Like, I don't have to do anything to prove myself to him because Jesus already proved me. I am approved in Christ. And the same is true for everyone who has become a Christian. So yeah, sure, their spiritual discipline, their spiritual formation, those things help me get closer to God, but they're not helping me to become approved by God. That's already happened for me because I'm in Christ. And the same is true if you're in Christ. So if we view, if we're viewing religion or Sabbath or any of these things as somehow like God's going to love me more because I do this thing, you, you don't understand God's grace. God's grace is the catalyst that actually makes our lives work. So, just a couple of statements to close us out here. I think we need to understand the biblical theology, the point of theology here that, that God wants us to see. And that's that doing good is a part of who God is. It, it's always in season to do good. If we ever think we are serving God by withholding good in any way or by remaining neutral when we have an opportunity to, to do something good, then we don't know God and we don't honor him. Often this requires us to put our own well-being aside just like Jesus did. God constantly inconvenience himself. God, God is constantly inconveniencing himself so that others can have it better. It's, it's just his way. It's the way of God. And we need to understand from a spiritual formation standpoint, like how do I grow up in this? Like how does God want me to, to grow in these things? We need to understand that as Jesus people, it's our job to always be growing in doing good. So one of the things I would suggest is look for opportunities to do something good and pursue it. Chase that opportunity. If you see somebody in need, do, go fill that need. Don't sit around and be like, well, you know, I don't know if I should... I don't know if I, I have the resources. No, do what you can. You don't, you don't have to completely fix it. Just do what you can to serve somebody and actively pursue that because that is the way of Jesus. And in, in doing that, we are actually learning to walk in his ways. We want to actively 
practice this as a part of our spiritual formation to do good. And in doing all of these things, we will actually confront brokenness in the world. Because our world is nothing like Jesus, right? Our, our world is driven by self-preservation and fear rather than sacrifice and love. So when we start to live lives of sacrifice and love, we're actually coming against the way of the world. And some people are going to be angry about it, but others are going to be blown away. And they're going to, they're going to wonder, what is this that you are doing? Like, and how can I have some of what you have? They're going to want to know. Because, listen, we in the world have strayed so far from the light of the gospel. People are, are, are confused. They think that darkness is light. So we, as Christians, are called by God to show people what it looks like to live in light of who Jesus is so that then they can be drawn to a better way. God wants us to show them a better way. So to summarize all this in only three statements, one, we want to acknowledge that God is good and doing good in any context is in line with his character. Two, we want to actively practice dying to ourselves by following Jesus in every way and inconveniencing ourselves for the good of others. And, and three, we want to recognize the brokenness of this world, its cruelty and its selfishness, its fear, and the fact that it is opposite to the way of God. We want to reject that entirely and prove it wrong by showing people a better way through Jesus by both proclaiming the truth of the gospel as we act it out simultaneously. The heart of Sabbath is exactly what this life represents. A life of doing good, reflecting on God's glory, and that we would make it about that in everything we do. You've been listening to the New Covenant Fellowship Sermon Podcast. If God spoke to you or if you'd like us to pray for you, you can email Pastor Nick directly at nick at newcovenantokc.org. If you'd like more information about our church, you may visit us on the web at newcovenantokc.org. We can't wait to hear from you.